So as Christians, born of God, born of the Holy Spirit, uh, well, before that, we had loved our sinful nature, we embraced it, but when we were born again, we came to a point where we no longer loved our sinful nature. We desired and hunger and thirst after righteousness. We wish sin would be out of our lives. It isn't, but we wish it would be. We wish temptations would go away, but they don't. Have you ever struggled with a certain sin so much, you pray and you pray and you go to scripture and you read so much scripture and you're hoping to see transformation, but just nothing happens. You see little progress. Today, I'm wanting to put a microscope, not so much on how we overcome sin, though we're gonna discuss that, but what's going on when we sin and what's happening in temptation. If we pull back the curtain when we're sinning and we're being tempted, what's going on? What's happening? And what should you do when there's a, a, a sinful desire just burning within you? In the West, um, there's naturalism, this, this idea that uh, all we can see and observe and test, that's all that exists. Uh, spiritual beings, God, Satan, demons, they don't exist, right? Uh, that's, that's the idea. There's no evidence of spiritual reality, so they don't exist. Now, as Christians, we're not going to go that far. Uh, we, we don't, we're not going to be influenced to that extent that we're going to say spiritual beings don't exist, but we are influenced by it. What do I mean by that? It's become almost taboo uh, to talk about demons and, and Satan and things like this. It's become taboo in our circles to say Satan is behind this, Satan's attacking the church, or, or, uh, or, or something like that. At least we, we consider it as primitive and unsophisticated. One of the reasons maybe is, you know, we, in America there's many logos that have a little red character with a pitchfork on it. We see that, it's almost laughable, and it's, well, if we talk about that, it's perhaps laughable uh, that we do that. That's the guy in my hot sauce, not the guy tempting me. There's a line from a movie, um, it's partially true, but it says, the greatest trick the devil ever did was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil ever, did, devil ever did was convincing the world he didn't exist. I don't think it's his greatest trick, but I certainly think he is trying to convince the West that he doesn't exist. And perhaps there is a satanic scheme behind naturalism. Perhaps there is a satanic scheme behind this portrayal of Satan on logos and things like that, because the more non-existent Satan becomes to us, the more dangerous he becomes, the more susceptible we become to the damage that he can do in our lives, in our churches, in our families. Paul said the reason that he's not going to be outwitted by Satan is because he's not ignorant of Satan's schemes. 
So let's not be ignorant either. Today, we're going to look at the schemes of Satan, what he wants to accomplish when we willingly sin, as well as how we can overcome him. For the last two weeks, we've looked at different yet related aspects of the cross. The first week, we looked at penal substitutionary atonement. That is the main thing that's happening on the cross, Jesus being our substitute, dying in our place, and averting God's wrath so that we can be forgiven. Last week, we looked at how the cross frees us from the chains of sin. Today, we're going to look at the one who's holding the chain. The official name of the doctrine of Jesus defeating Satan and the demonic forces, Satan crushing the serpent's head, uh, this is called Christus Victor. And it was the leading theory uh, of atonement in the early church. Eventually, in the 11th century, there was a man named Anselm, and he started uh, believing in what was called a satisfaction theory, and this led to uh, the Reformation in the 16th century for them believing in penal substitutionary atonement. That became the leading theory at that point. Well, uh, in the early 1900s, there was a man who, who started bringing up Christus Victor again, but he brought up what's called a false dichotomy. He said it's either Christus Victor or penal substitutionary atonement. It's one or the other. As I said, that's a false dichotomy. Most theologians today and scholars today believe that they're compatible. Penal substitutionary atonement is the main thing that's happening on the cross, that's mainly what's happening, and Jesus defeating the evil powers is second. So let's look at our text. We're in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and in verses 13 and 14, it's teaching what we talked about the first week. We were dead in our sins. God placed our legal record of debt on Jesus, and Jesus died. He paid that debt, and we're forgiven. But today, we're not focusing on that. We're going to focus more on verse 15. Now, with that said, I want to say that this entire series has been topical. The main diet of a church, you want to go through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book. But occasionally, topical sermons are helpful. And this whole series has been topical, and today it will be. So we're going to bounce around, even though we are on Colossians 2. But Colossians 2.15 he disarmed the ruler and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So who are the rulers and authorities? Well, most often it's referring to spiritual beings, and in this case, it's referring to Satan and demonic forces. But what does it mean that he disarmed them? He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Sometimes for fun, I'll ask Margie a question. I'll say, uh, if somebody broke into our house, what would you do? What would you do? And bless her heart, she thinks that she's going to do some sort of martial arts and, and fight this guy. She's seen a lot of movies. But she, at five foot nothing, thinks that she's going to take out this potentially 200-pound guy. And... When one of the things she's going to do is take his weapon away. She's going to disarm him. 
Never mind the fact that one time I did tell her that she could punch me as hard as she could, and when she finally did it, I didn't even know that she did it. <laughs> but the point is she's going, to, uh, she's going to disarm them. She's going to take the weapon away. That's what it means here. Paul says that Jesus took Satan and the demonic forces' weapon away. He disarmed them. That just brings up another question. What was the weapon? What was the weapon that Satan held? You can turn, I have a slide, so you don't have to go there if you want, but you can turn to Hebrews 2. We're going to plant there for a second. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who th uh, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we're going to stay on Hebrews 2 for a second, and I'll let you see the rest of it. He might destroy the one who has power of death. There's a lot to unpack here, but remember we're answering the question, what is Satan's weapon? It says he has the power of death. What does that mean? How does Satan have the power of death? Well, the way that Satan controls is through his words, which is fitting. You know, kings, subjects, they control through words. They tell you what to do and you uh, obey. Well, Satan controls through his words. One way is by temptation. We can think back to the garden. One of the first things he did was get Eve to see this forbidden fruit as being attractive. The way he talked, the way he presented it, the way he presented moral autonomy, it was a temptation burning within her, and it was attractive. But the very nature of temptation implies willing participants. It implies a willing participant. It's probably very difficult, if you think about it, for Satan to get the first creatures, Adam and Eve, perfect creatures to sin. That's something I think about often, like how in the world does a perfect creature do something that's not perfect? But after the fall, where we have a sinful nature, it's not difficult. It's not difficult for him to tempt people and do his will. We eagerly carry out his will. We very willingly participate. He has schemes, Satan has schemes, he has plans, and he carries out those plans in the world through tempting, willful, sinful human beings. Think about the instance of murder for a second. Satan is surely there tempting, planning, helping it along. But the one that pulls the trigger is willing. He's a willing participant. Humans love carrying out these temptations because we have a sinful nature and we enjoy sin. And this idea that everybody's carrying out his will, this is what scripture describes as a kingdom of darkness. But what does Satan do 
after he tempts us and we willingly sin, what does he do after that? He becomes our accuser. He becomes our accuser. Remember in Job, uh, Satan used to go before God and he would accuse Job to God. Uh, the scripture that we read this morning, it says that uh, in Revelation 12 that Kevin read, it says that he accuses us before the throne of God day and night. Why does he accuse us? Because he knows that sin and death, they're inseparable. Sin and death are inseparable. They go together. The wages of sin is death, as Paul says in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. He knows that God is holy. He knows that sin's penalty is death. It's condemnation. So he accuses us before God. And then you think about this, it's like, are you kidding me? You are a participant in this. You, you know, you tempted me, you helped me carry it out, but, and he's going to come back around and then accuse you for the thing that he was a participant in? It's ridiculous, but that's what he does. It's like, stay on my hot sauce, bro. But he doesn't only accuse us to God, he accuses us personally. He accuses us personally. We sin, and then Satan's job after you sin is to hang the banner of condemnation over your head. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. And it's because of our fear of sin's penalty, condemnation, that he keeps us from going to God. We're like Adam and Eve that just hide in the garden from God because we're afraid. And the Bible describes this, of us living in fear of death, living in fear of condemnation, as Satan taking us captive. Satan taking us captive. And Timothy, Paul says that uh, humans have been taken captive to do his will. It's our fear of sin's penalty, death, condemnation. That's his weapon. That's what he uses to take us captive. Look again at Hebrews 2, into verse 15. I still have it up. It says, through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. Through the fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. We are slaves to Satan because of fear of God's condemnation. He tells us that our sins, there's something that cannot be forgiven, there's something that cannot be overcome, and because of our sin, God hates us. He condemns you. Don't go to him. Hide. Hide your sin and hide from God. John says in the gospel that, that men would not come to the light. They wouldn't come to Jesus because their works were evil and they did not want their works to be exposed. In other words, you go to the light, you're going to be exposed as being evil. Let's just keep hiding in the darkness. We know that we're sinners. 
We hide it from God. We hide it from each other. And we stay away from God because God is angry at us. God hates us. He condemns us. And it's that fear that keeps us from God and what Satan uses as a weapon to hold us captive. That's how he uses the power of death. I heard a story recently about there was a kidnapping and this guy took a little girl and uh, he told her that if you ever escape, I took you at a place you weren't supposed to be at and so if you ever escape, you're gonna be in trouble with your parents and also if you escape, you're gonna be in trouble with the police. And so he was using that fear, the fear of punishment of her parents, the fear of punishment from the police to keep her captive. He's lying, manipulative, manipulating. That's how Satan keeps people captive. Satan is a harsh, manipulative, cruel taskmaster that keeps people in chains through fear. Many people, they embrace their captivity we see examples of this in the Old Testament when the Jews uh, were uh, exiled, had to go to Babylon. They were kicked out of the land. They started worshiping the gods of Babylon, and many of them, when it was time to go back, didn't want to go back. They embraced their captivity. And, and everyone today, we have to deal with this. Everybody has a fear of death, everybody has a fear of condemnation. And for atheists, if, if God is an angry tyrant who's just going to condemn me, well, then he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. Let's suppress this truth. Let's live however we want. Richard Dawkins, he had a line. He was doing a tour, and there was a, a, a line spelt on his bus, and it said, uh, do not be afraid. God doesn't exist. Live however you want. Don't be afraid. God doesn't exist. Live however you want. That's very telling. Because it's saying that denying God's existence leads to freedom. The fear of death goes away. That's how some people deal with the fear of death. If God doesn't exist, I don't have to deal with it. But that's not the solution lying to ourselves, imagining things that doesn't change reality. And so this is how scripture presents humanity's problem. John sums it up in 1 John 5. He says the whole world is under the control of the devil. The whole world is under the control of the devil. We're controlled through the fear of death, but our text in Colossians says that Jesus disarmed that weapon. He took it away. Jesus took away his power to accuse. He can no longer use this fear of death as a weapon. How do you do that? How'd that happen? If Satan's weapon is a fear of death, what's the solution? There's a book uh, in uh, Reformed Christian circles. It's by Jeremy Treat, and it's called The Crucified King. 
And in the book, he argues that Jesus defeats Satan through penal substitutionary atonement. Christus victor through penal substitutionary atonement. What we talked about week one. If fear, if, if fear of condemnation, if the condemnation, if death, if that's what keeps us enslaved, if that's what keeps us in chains, then Jesus being punished in our place and taking that condemnation on himself, that takes away Satan's weapon of control. If there's no condemnation for us because Jesus took it, he no longer has a weapon. Our text in Colossians, it teaches both sides of this. Verses 13 and 14, it teaches that Jesus canceled our record of debt completely, paid the penalty of our sins. It's not explicitly penal substitutionary atonement, but it's implied there. And since that's true, Satan can no longer enslave us through the fear of punishment. I'll say it another way. When someone makes an accusation that accusation only has power to the extent that it's true. It only has power to the extent that it's true. If the accusation is baseless, it has no power. Well, in reality anyway, it can still keep you in fear. We are forgiven through the cross, so his claims about us being condemned, they have no power. They're not real. We went to this week one, but I have to go here again because it's so relevant. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. So notice a few things. Paul asked two questions. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect and who is to condemn? And both of them have rhetorical answers. No one. No one can bring a charge against us. No one can bring a charge against a believer that's going to stick. And no one can condemn you. And notice that both of those are the weapons that I said Satan had accusations and fear of condemnation. Accusations and condemnation. And Paul said they're both gone. They're gone. But his weapons, they were legitimate. They were legitimate weapons. We have sin, and sin does deserve condemnation. We do deserve that. Someone does have to die. Someone does have to pay that penalty. But Paul says that the reason we're no longer condemned is because Jesus is the one who was condemned. He's the one that was our substitute. Christus victor through Penal Substitutionary Atonement. There's a movie called Double Jeopardy. I haven't seen it, so if you have, don't, uh, don't judge me. But I haven't seen it, but apparently in the story, there's a woman who, uh, she was accused of murdering her husband, didn't actually do it, but she served like 40 years in prison. 
That was the sentence they gave her. So she served that entire sentence. And then when she got out, she found out her husband is actually still alive and he set her up. Guess what she does? Kills him. In the movie, she cannot be charged again because she has already paid that penalty, the first penalty. It cannot happen again. And Paul is arguing something similar to double jeopardy. We cannot pay our penalty, uh, pay the same penalty that Jesus has already paid. If Jesus has paid our penalty of condemnation, if he has paid our entire debt, then we cannot pay that again. That would be unjust. Satan has been disarmed because his claims are not real. They're no longer real for a believer. So what do you do when a temptation comes? What do you do when you fall into sin and a a sense of guilt? How do we fight Satan personally? How do we fight being enslaved once again? The rest of our lives is going to be a fight against Satan. The rest of our lives, till you go in that grave, you're going to fight Satan every day. Ephesians 6, it gives an outline for how to fight against Satan, you know, take up the whole armor of God. We're not going to go there, but there's an outline there, and there's been entire books Uh, volumes of books written on that. But you will sin again. You have sinned, and you might even fall into a pattern of sin again. He's going to use that. He's going to use that. If you're not completely spiritually sleeping, he's going to try to convince you that you're going to die. There's condemnation waiting for you. You've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You've outsinned God's grace. You've sinned against light. You've done something that God can no longer forgive. You've done something in the covenant that's given you a stain that you can't, it just can't be removed. Condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Give up. Often we respond to believing it to some degree. And and I said there's no power in it, but there is power if you still believe it. There is power if you still believe it. We, We believe it to some degree. There are some Christians that are stuck in shame and fear. We get into the seemingly endless loop of sin, shame, condemnation, sin, shame, condemnation. And sometimes we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into that cycle. And then we live in despair. We live in hopelessness. For others, we we don't give up, but we have despair that immobilizes us to the point that we're ineffective for the kingdom. We no longer want to strive for righteousness. 
And when we sin, we hide it from God. We think that's what we should do. We hide it. We hide it. We don't bring it to God. And we hide from God himself. We sin, we hide our sin, and we hide from God. And as we create this distance between ourselves and God, because we are hiding from God from our, with our sin, Satan slowly begins to use that fear of condemnation to wrap that chain around you once again. How do we fight back? How do we fight back against these relentless assaults? Because they will not stop. If, as we said, fear of death is what enslaves us and keeps us in chains, it keeps us away from God, then naturally being aware of our forgiveness frees us and leads us to God. Being aware of our forgiveness. If consciousness of death is what slaves you, then consciousness of forgiveness is what frees you. Listen to Hebrews 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I'll say that one more time. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What's implied here is that a guilty conscience keeps you from serving God. A guilty conscience keeps you from going to God. A guilty conscience keeps you enslaved. And he's saying that the blood of Jesus cleanses that conscience so that you'll go to him again and you'll serve him. Meditate on the cross of Jesus Christ. To overcome fear, overcome sin, we meditate on the sacrificial death of Jesus. We pray for God to cleanse our conscience too. As John says in Revelations, Revelation, the saints conquered through the blood of the Lamb. And Paul, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer through the blood. First John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from some unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. Jesus said, and we often hear the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and this is something I think very rare, and I don't even know if people can do it today, but they forget what he says right before that. And it's, the most, it's one of the most wonderful texts to meditate on. He says, every sin and blaspheme that a man commits will be forgiven. Every sin that a man commits, that a woman commits, will be forgiven. In Psalm 32, David said, I acknowledge my sin. I did not hide my sin. I did not cover up my sin. But I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Satan wants you to hide the sin. He wants you to hide from God. David said, when I stopped hiding, David lived in hiding it for a year until Nathan came and, and caused him to repent. He stopped hiding the sin and God forgave him. 
God said, as far as the east is from the west, so I have removed your sins from you. I don't want to hear what I'm about to say as uh, a a license to, to sin because Paul had to deal with that as well. But Paul said that where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. God has a strong, strong desire to be glorified for his grace and for his mercy and for his forgiveness. And that means if there's going to be praise for his great mercy and his glory in that, that means there has to be great sin. God's mercy forgives great sin. God's mercy forgives repeated sin. For God's mercy forgives all sin. Now, it doesn't mean that we abuse God's grace and mercy, but it means that if we keep confessing, if we keep repenting, if we keep looking to the cross of Jesus, that means that that grace and that mercy will never run out. If you are a true believer, you have stepped into a state of grace and mercy and forgiveness that cannot be undone. It can't be undone. And all that is true because of Jesus' substitutionary work. We conquer and persevere through the blood of the Lamb. So who are you believing at this point? That's what it really comes down to. Who are you believing at this point? You believe in Satan? You believe in God? We want to get out of this cycle of sin, shame, condemnation, but ironically, it's by going to God, not covering our sin, not hiding our sin, And it's looking to the cross instead of listening to Satan's accusations. That's actually how we start overcoming sin. When you know you're forgiven, it creates within a true believer this strong desire to follow him. When you have a clear conscience, as Hebrews said, it frees you to serve the living God. So let's get out of this cycle of sin, shame, condemnation, and get into the cycle of exposing our sin, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, and looking to the cross. And when we do that, we need to live in light of every day, knowing that we are forgiven. So that's basically the point of the sermon. When Satan is trying to enslave us once again, using the power of death, using the fear of condemnation, show him a real power, the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the weapon and power of the cross of Jesus Christ to overcome our enemies. We thank you for crushing the serpent's head who has kept us all in bondage. And Father, as we wrap up 
this sermon series, we are just thankful for all the, the truthfulness of the cross, that our sins are taken away there, that you freed us from our sin there, and that you freed us and give us power over, our, uh, over the slave master Satan. You disarmed him. Thank you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.